Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm talking to Stephen Sachs. Met him a couple of years ago through a mutual friend. A client of mine was looking to raise some money and somebody introduced me to Stephen to introduce to them. He is an author. He's written uh, written a book, Reboot Your Business, which is his step-by-step guide to growing your business. Includes a fantastic section on how to apply for grants and not the usual sort of think you can go on Google, apply for grants, and there's a whole lot of scammy businesses which will take a several hundred pounds off you and not help you at all. Uh, his book is uh, way cheaper, and you can flick through it at your leisure. How to apply for 140 grants in the UK. Uh, that's fantastic. The rest of the book is a how-to guide. It's a very actionable, step-by-step process to think about your business, look to how you can fund it from free cash, where that free cash might be. One of the things we talk about today when we're chatting is really raising prices and how many people find that very difficult. And really using a third party to come in and help you think about it differently can be really helpful. I'd like to tell you where Stephen went to school and college and university, but he didn't. He uh, he left school with a clutch of O-levels and a CSE in technical drawing. And then he found himself in business. Uh, which why he's been in business for so long, even though he's a relatively young man, because he dived straight in, turned his hand to a load of things. All of them were a success. And then two years ago, decided that he'd really fallen out of love with the business he'd been in. Bored of travel, bored of pointless meetings and, and socialising. And so he decided to turn his hand to being a fundraiser and advisor and, I guess, business coach. So here we are, Stephen Sachs. I'm Stephen Sachs. I'm from FundingNav and I help businesses raise capital and also uh, realize their ambition. Generally, they, they start off with more ambition than cash and I look to sort the position out. And what types of business do you work with typically? Typically, or the ones I like to work with most are sort of from 2 million to about 20 million in revenue. UK businesses but across all sorts of different industries. So currently I'm working with a business in computer games, another one in pharmaceuticals, another one in store design, another one in fashion design, a couple of fashion businesses, although one is from Berlin, uh, so that isn't a UK business, and lots of other bits and pieces along the way. So uh, a big variety of, I mean, like you, I know know what your background is too, a lot of the issues that businesses face are really common. A lot of them are human and they don't really relate to industry, I find. Yes. Are you raising money for people for particular purposes normally? Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose several different things. Obviously, startups need capital. 
seed capital in order to sort of kick off and get going. Scale-ups need more money, sometimes equity, sometimes could be debt, or sometimes could be a hybrid sort of venture debt, or help with tax in order to get bigger. And then turnarounds and refinancing, dependent upon what the requirements are. But sometimes it's not about the funding, it's about reducing the requirement, because as you know, especially on with regard to turnarounds and scale-ups, its lack of cash is often a symptom of sort of a deeper malaise rather than the problem itself. Do you help people with that as well, or is it just the funding, or are you helping them fix the fix? No, 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 no. The first thing I do is I try to fix the problem without any funding because obviously funding is expensive wherever you get it from, and it has a personality, and therefore it will influence the way the business is run. So, no, if we can fix the problem without funding, then that's far more preferable. And so what are some of the common things that you go in and look at? You must have sort of your playbook to help you understand where the big problem is. Generally, it's around pricing, sales and marketing, and capacity issues, I find. Okay. And in terms of pricing, what do you find? People are underpricing, bottom-up pricing? Yeah, so I can give you a couple of examples. So, for example... I saw a business that sells snacks and they got a 30,000 square foot warehouse in North London, uh, sorry, a factory in North London, runs 24 seven and they are making a loss. And so when they came to me, they wanted to uh, raise capital in order to expand the factory and make more money. But when I kind of analyzed it, I just figured that they were gonna get deeper in the malaise. So the suggestion was, don't raise any more money. Lose more just money. Put your prices up. Put your price up by 10%. And they kicked against it and they did it. Um, and there was no requirement for more capital. They lost some of their cheaper customers, obviously. They went somewhere else, but they gained better quality customers as a result. Their business is both more profitable and more satisfying for the shareholders now. And the best example of it, actually, is a really unfortunate one. It was a friend of mine who sold his recruitment software business and he thought he got a good price for this business and the first thing that the new acquirer did was raise all the prices by 40 percent 40 percent four zero that is and he thought they were absolutely mad he thought that they were you know they were going to trash the business in reality it made no difference it just revenues went up by 40 percent they didn't lose any business whatsoever and obviously the bottom line went through the roof and he realized how cheap he sold that business. And I find the fact that often there is no price elasticity and that the fear is in the mind of the entrepreneur or the business owner is fascinating. And I probably would have been there myself, but I know at IT Lab when I arrived there and found that we were losing about £65,000 a month. One of the things we did was we put prices up 50%. We did lose one large customer, but the rest stayed with us. And when I went to see them, they said, well, frankly, we couldn't go anywhere else because you're so cheap. And if you fix the service issues, we'll stay. So we'll definitely sign another 12 months. It's a pain to move. You've got a plan. And that was a 50% price increase. So like your your friend, I've had, I've had those situations. So I, at least from a personal perspective, when I talk to clients about price and price increase, it comes from sort of hard-won experience. But lots of people just, they don't do annual price increases. They don't put the price up for the next client. 
Um, it's just a thing that sort of doesn't get reviewed. Do you have some general advice for people? I mean, obviously those snack guys, they weren't, they were trying to run a business. Why, why had they not thought about putting in a price increase? Why had that not crossed their minds? I think after a while, the tail wags the dog. You start off in business, you, you create a business, you, you, you create a pricing architecture, you have fixed overheads, and then you, you create a kind of fear that um, if you suddenly increase prices, you're going to let the customers down, the customers are going to let you down, you won't be able to um, pay for your overhead costs. And you have a mental block about it, I think. I think that's probably one of the one of the reasons why it's probably good to have an external view in your business. Yeah. Just somebody who doesn't come with any of that baggage and can ask those difficult questions. You also mentioned sales and marketing as one of the things you look at. I guess the snack guys, if they were thinking about building another factory, they didn't perceive themselves as having a sales and marketing issue. They were, I suppose, trying to grow the top line so there'd be enough bottom line. But obviously you must go in other places where Growth is you perceive to be the challenge. What, tell me more about that. I'm actually working uh, in a business currently advising them. And this is a creative business where the guy that owns the business has always bought the business in. And all of the creatives are basically waiting to be fed the work. And they expect a monthly paycheck. And you know, in return, they discharge the work. But... He asked me to come in and said, look, we need more customers. They're heavily reliant on really one very, very large client. Obviously, there's a big danger that they could lose that client. We'll do eventually one day. And so I said, well, I think the issue here is cultural. Actually, everybody needs to be a bit responsible for gaining more clients. And especially with tools like LinkedIn, you know, there's no reason why everybody can't do a bit every day. You don't need a sales team in here, but you do need more than one person doing it, and everybody could do it a bit. So um, actually, it's a struggle. The creatives don't like that idea. So this is about cultural change within the business so that they all take partial responsibility for that. Yeah. Are they after uh, funding to grow the business? Is that why they spoke to you in the business? Well, no. Uh, with this one, actually, they don't need funding in their business, but... They probably will acquire some businesses. Uh, we're looking at various acquisitions and bolt-ons, uh-huh. and they'll need funding for those. Right. And then they need to fix the sales and marketing problem because they've got more creatives to feed. Yeah. 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 So it becomes like a big wheel. You know, at the beginning, this business turning over about 2 million quid just in services, virtually 100% margins. It's a great business. But I reckon uh, we'll have that 10 times the size uh, within about a year to 18 months. Fantastic. And that, that's just through acquisition? It's both through acquisition and also through new customer acquisition. Okay. It's, it's all going to be acquisition of one kind or another. It won't be from the existing customers. Okay. And do you have a playbook for that organization around using LinkedIn to do customer acquisition? Yeah, it's kind of what I do in order to um, acquire my own clients. And it's what I advise other people to do too. What does that look like? What are the... What do you get people to do? Basically, you need to be very, very active on LinkedIn and you need to treat LinkedIn like an enormous networking opportunity. Um, So you need to be interested and engaged with people. You need to be nurturing relationships constantly. 
you need to be um, inquisitive and joining in with people. You basically need to spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. In fact, I've probably spent three hours today on LinkedIn already, and after we finish this, I'll probably go back to it. It's where I spend a lot of time, and I get a lot of positive feedback from it and clients. Is that your main source of client acquisition? Yes. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I speak to a large number of clients and they, they want to hire somebody to do sales. You know, you're talking about this creative business, which has got the CEO, I guess, doing the customer acquisition. And at some point they just, they don't want to do LinkedIn and, and they want to hire somebody to do it. But it's just really difficult to go and I remember trying to put it in context for a client I was working with last year. And I said, look, if you want to hire somebody who's as good as you at sales, you're going to have to pay them £100,000. And he said, well, I can't possibly afford to do that. And I said, well, we've got, we've got to look at ways then to make your life easier and make this scale because you're not winning enough business and your, your growth aspirations currently outstrip your sales and marketing capability, but doesn't want to go and use LinkedIn. I find it. I, I know. It I, I find it bizarre. I, sometimes I, I try and link in with people who I've got a genuine interest in, and they'll say something like, "I'll only link in with people who I've met." There's a lot of resistance sometimes, or I, I'm just linking this. I'm keeping this in a certain way. Or often I don't do LinkedIn. It's like really. I mean, it's like I say, I'm going to go into a room of people who actually might want to buy my product, and I say, I don't do conversations with any of you. It's like, why would you do that? It's like trying to kill your own business. It's bizarre. <laughs> well, they've got an absolutely terrible profile picture or an absolutely terrible profile. So, and it doesn't, they are in their own right when you meet them, interesting, can solve problems, you know, have great businesses. And then you look at that same person on LinkedIn and they're not treating it in the same way that they've got a website and they've spent some time and effort on that and their offices look nice and, you know, they've got a phone number. And then you look at LinkedIn, it's like if anybody, and at one level, there's the customer acquisition piece. And then the other bit that I talk to people a lot is about the acquisition of talent. And I say, what will be the first thing that somebody does after they know you're going to interview them? And they go, oh, I don't know. I say, well, they're going to go and look at you on LinkedIn. And they go, oh, okay. And I say, and look at it, it looks terrible. And any good person will only want to work for great people and they'll have plenty of opportunities to work for great people. So you're doing yourself a massive disservice, either you know, new customer or new prospective employee. They're all going to go and look at you on LinkedIn and say, do I want to do business with this person or do I want to work with this person? And so even if you're not going to be proactive, just make it so it doesn't suck. Yeah. Well, to be fair, Dominic, you did have a picture of yourself up a few months ago when I first commented where you looked at, we had like dog's ears, I remember, sort of coming off the top of your head. I don't know what that was, what that was all about. <laughs> That's because I, there was a photograph of me standing, I suppose, with the beam in the office behind me. Thank you for pointing that out. I hope you've noticed I did fix it. So what other challenges are you helping uh, clients fix? I suppose the biggest joy that I have, and certainly the biggest joy that my clients have, and the thing I really sell the business on as a USP is the acquisition of free cash. And that's what I do my keynote on. And it's all about R&D tax credits, video games, tax relief, capital allowances, or some of the things we mentioned around pricing, customer acquisition. It's basically margin improvements. It's just basically doing an MOT of the business and bringing in both from external sources and also from internal sources more money 
with no cost whatsoever. And that's what I really, really enjoy doing. And that's, I feel it's like the USP of the business. Where did you, how did you learn this stuff? I've been owning trading businesses for around about 30 years, buying businesses, selling businesses. And I kind of had a midlife crisis when I got to 50, which is very recent, I should say, not, not that long ago, about three years. I exited the business and then I kind of thought about what I wanted to do next. And, that, and then it's kind of this realization, I said two realizations. Number one was I was probably too old fashioned, despite the fact I'm in advising a number of fashion businesses now as a kind of like a day job, I kind of fallen out of love with it. And that was kind of where I spent most of my time in business throughout my career. And I found that I was, you know, there's a lot of travel involved in what I was doing, you know, sometimes traveling you know, abroad at least once a week. I was going to places, I was going through the motions, I was doing the sales, but I wasn't doing the social bit afterwards. I just going back to my room, doing some emails, going to sleep. So that isn't really what it's all about. And then secondly, I kind of worked out that my weak point and what I'm not good at is soft skills, HR, uh, management. And I decided I didn't really want a team anymore. I wanted to be kind of out on my own. And then I looked back at my career and I thought about the points at which I added most value both to myself and to uh, the businesses I was involved in. And generally, they were around difficult transactions, pulling a rabbit out of the hat, doing something which other people couldn't do around funding and around um, sales and marketing. They were always my strong points. So at the beginning of 2017, I thought, well, maybe I can make a business out of that, make the whole thing about free cash, and then on the back of that, try and sell services and transactions. So I thought I'd give it a go for a year and see what happens. Well, it was a phenomenal year. I wrote a book at the end of the year, and this year's been better. And so it's kind of gone from strength to strength. I'm having a huge amount of fun. I'm making more money than I used to make when I was like had a much, much larger business where I got a very small percentage of what was made at the end of the day. You know, now, obviously, my turnover is much lower, but I get all of it. That's really good. And I sleep so well at night. <laughs> In your own bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is priceless. So it's been amazing. It's been a, a really, really good opportunity to take everything that I learned, package it up, do something really really valuable with it for me and also for clients why the book was that about the packaging up was it the end product or the process it was about sales and marketing i suppose that's what motivated me to do it i never felt i was going to be the next john grisham or jk rowling but i felt that if i could present a sales lead with a book at the end of a meeting that i wrote on the subject that we've just discussed rather than a business card then I'd have a lot more chance of converting them for more value later down the line So it's, than I would um, the other way. So that was kind of the point about it. That's why I really made the effort to do that. And so it sounds that you got that before and after, before the book and after the book. What's, what's happened to your sort of conversion rate? Or is it the value, conversion rates are the same and they, the value's gone up? So I don't know. In all honesty, I, I can't really measure it because... I've only been doing this for two years and over that period, I'm obviously getting progressively better at it. The book was part of the journey. It wasn't like I was doing exactly the same things in 17 as I've been doing in 18. I've been doing 
I've been much more targeted in 18. I've had more success in 18. And I expect to do more in 19, but the book is just part of all of that. So I can't say it was like night and day. It was just part of the journey. Yeah. Over the two years, you've refined who your ideal customer is? No, probably not. I haven't refined who my ideal customer is, but I have refined how I go about prospecting. So I, I was spending the majority of my time engaged in probably pretty worthless activities at the outset. So literally, I was out networking, um, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, I tried BNI. I tried for networking. I tried a series of different things, which were basically not suited to what I was doing. I mean, I guess that the type of businesses I was meeting there were not interested in my kinds of services. I tried a number of different exhibitions that mostly didn't work. And eventually, like I say, LinkedIn and some specific networking events just work really, really well. And now, of course, also I've got the power of referrals coming, which is obviously the most powerful uh, way to get introduced to new business altogether. It just progressively improving and refining but sometimes you get a surprising client you know one you wouldn't have expected and other times um, the obvious one is not suitable and you said you the book means that you now have a maybe you had the keynote before the book but you're now sort of keynoting on free cash flow talking about the book does that drive leads and or referrals or is that just because you enjoy spreading the message and, and sharing the love? I do enjoy speaking, and I wish I had more opportunity to do it. I did go as part of this journey. Um, I went to the Professional Speakers Association. It was there for just a bit more than a year, learning how to speak better. Because it is, no doubt about it, the majority of people are terrible you go to lots and lots of conferences and you get people up there kind of like stutter through a terrible presentation, standing behind the plinth, you know, reading the PowerPoint from words from the screen and everybody's sitting there on their mobile phones just trying to wish they were somewhere else. So trying to inspire people, give them a message which is kind of inspirational and deliver it in a way which is memorable is very, very satisfying. There's no question about it. And I really, really enjoy doing it. And yeah, sometimes it drives business. Almost by accident. And but it's it... one of those things, again, you add it to your LinkedIn, you know, it just builds your profile as um, in the same way that you're doing these podcasts. I also do some podcasts, you know, just adding to the stuff that you've got. You know, it just makes you just much more credible in, in your space, doesn't it? Well, yes. And in the same way that I suppose you say I, you enjoy the speaking and sometimes it drives business. I just, I suppose I started it as an experiment and now I find it absolutely fascinating what I'm able to have a conversation with and the people I'm able to have a conversation with. The fact that other people listen almost becomes, I suppose, secondary. I suppose I wouldn't take up the time and effort to do it if I didn't find it personally fascinating. Yeah. Do you remember Columbo? Yeah. So do you remember, you're familiar with the Columbo moment? He's doing the whole chat, and then at the end, he's kind of like uh, just leaving, and as he's turning the door, he turns around in his grubby old raincoat with his sort of cigar stuck in his mouth. He goes, hey, uh, just one thing. And that's normally like the killer point. It's like where he kind of gets to it, gets the murder and all the rest of it. And I think that's probably the value in this. You kind of speak and, and you get people into, um, into a rhythm and um, you build up confidence and trust. 
And literally at the end, I think you can turn the whole thing and you go, just one thing. And it's kind of like, wow, that was really powerful. And I, I kind of do that myself. You know, on LinkedIn, you, you see people, they link in with you and immediately the very first communication they send you is this huge vomit of information with links and this and that. And it's kind of like, you know, three foot long. And it's kind of like, and you look at it and oh my God, I can't even begin to focus on this. Who knows how many minutes you never read that stuff, which is completely the wrong way. If there's a conversation, like we're having a conversation now, and at the end you've got a pitch, that's the way to deliver the pitch and to get the most traction. So that, I think that's like the Columbo moment. And that's what you should be thinking about, what you're going to deliver at the end of this. I, <laughs> I have to say, I, I try to be, maybe this is the wrong thing to do, but I try to be selective with who I connect with. But if the first thing they send me after we've connected is a sales pitch, I go to the extra effort of going back in and unconnecting with them because it, we haven't shown that we can add any value to each other's lives and already you're trying to sell me software development in India or recruitment. It's a total naivety as to how humans interact. It just doesn't work like that. You can't build a relationship by going straight in at the beginning and asking for what you want. Unless it's a commercial relationship, like going to a shop or I'm visiting a brothel or whatever it is, I'm giving money in exchange for services or products then that's fine. It's kind of like, that's a commercial transaction. But if I want to build some trust with somebody or fall in love with somebody or whatever it is I want to do, then I've got to give and get, you know, there's got to be some give and take up to that point. It takes time. It was, you wouldn't stand, you wouldn't turn around to somebody that you bumped into in the bar and just try and take some money out of their wallet. You know, you'd just have a little bit, there'd be some conversation, there'd be some foreplay, something. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what else, what else do you find yourself spending time with clients? What other, what other wisdom can we, we extract from you whilst we've got you? Themes in terms of funding? Things that people get wrong? I think the biggest thing I see that people get wrong, this relates to startups, which um, London certainly is full of currently. And you walk into, I mean, WeWork, who so are the biggest user of office space in both London and New York after the government is full of startups and most of these businesses basically exist to empty the cash out of the pockets of investors without any concept of how ultimately customers are going to be buying whatever it is they're selling and they're only thinking of how we're going to move from seed round to a series a to series b to series c and so on and so forth so i think the biggest thing i see is people just not focusing on where the money should come from, which is the customer ultimately. Okay. And that goes back to your comment about being able to track the cash through the business and how they're driving value. Yeah. If you could go back in time and you had your um, trading life again, what is it that you know now that would make you faster, smarter, richer? What do you know now that you would want to take back? I would have started this 10 years ago, 10 years before I started it. <laughs> you already knew what you needed to know it 10 years ago. I think I knew most of it. Yeah, I think that I spent too long knowing that I should make a move and do something different. But there was a fear factor in doing something entirely new, which I just couldn't get to grips with. And I wish I did it before. When you took the leap, had you sort of saved up a parachute or a 
cushion? Was there, or you just got to the point where you're just tired and you thought, right, sod it, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't living hand to mouth. I had enough money to keep me going for some time, but nonetheless, I wasn't, um, certainly wasn't Bill Gates at that point. So it kind of had to work. And I think, you know, it's interesting, actually, people say, you know, then what, what's your number? You know, what, you know, how much is the right amount and all the rest of it. And generally people come up with numbers, I suppose, between 5 million and 100 million of what would be a good number. But actually, maybe a number closer to zero or even a negative number is a much better number. Because I think that what people forget is the motivation and the hunger and how that drives success of, you know, having to get out of bed and having to get you know, really early and do stuff and, and be out there running around. And that kind of builds up its own, own momentum. And if you go into a business, as I see a lot of people, angels, for example, who've sold businesses and then put a hundred grand into this and a hundred grand into that, you know, without huge commitment, they try and replicate some of the success, which they enjoyed when they were making that kind of money, but mostly they fail. And the reason is that they haven't got the hunger anymore. And it's gone. They don't need it that much. It's really difficult, I think, that. So I, I think almost you're better off feeling uncomfortable and you're probably much more successful in my view. Some fear. I think fear about not just the financial reward, but also that sort of drive personally to prove to yourself that you can be successful. Mm. Tell me about your book. Let's... Give me a plug for your book and then I'll get some recommendations for other books from you as well. So my book's called Reboot Your Business. It's written in three sections. The first section is basically a spin on um, how the world is changing, rapidly changing, and how even concepts which seemed relevant relatively recently may not be relevant now. And I see that every day in my work, you know, businesses that were very risk averse, becoming very open to risk, businesses that were only selling online, now it's not selling online, other businesses doing something else, now doing an entirely different thing. Businesses that are succeeding, being very, very open to change, because I think that's just so important now. Having formulated your idea in the first section and kind of refined it, the second section is all about how to get it funded. And then the third section is all about how to make marginal improvements in order to drive the profitability out of that concept. Okay. Available at Amazon and all good retailers? Yep. Fantastic. And, and what, along your journey or perhaps clients you see today, what, what books one to three do you recommend people pick up and digest? Well, one to three would have to be the um, trilogy by Yuval Noah Harari, which I think everybody's looked at, haven't they? Sapiens, Homo Deus, and 21 Rules for the 21st Century, I think it's called. That's kind of the top of everybody's list, isn't it? 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Are you claiming that as three? Is, is that three or one? Well, it's a trilogy. You said one to three, and definitely, that you, <laughs> I think you should read all three. Yeah. I'll tell you another really interesting book, which I've read recently, um, which is, and in fact, quite relevant to um, the commemorations that were kind of experienced around the world last month for the end of the First World War, was um, the 
biography of John Monash called The Outsider Who Won the War by uh-huh. Roland Perry. So Monash, Australians will be familiar with because um, it's the name of the uh, university in Melbourne. He was an outsider in so far as um, he was a German speaker. His parents were German. They emigrated to Australia and he was an engineer and a part-time soldier. In fact, before Australia was even a country, it was a series of territories. So it was kind of in the, whichever bit uh, Melbourne is in, built bridges and so forth. And then he went off to war in the First World War. He became a general ultimately. And there wasn't much about him actually in the commemorations in November, but he was the kind of guy that, I think it was on August the 8th, 1918, he kind of invented what the Nazis eventually adopted and called the Blitzkrieg, which is basically a sort of lightning war, which was completely the opposite of what happened during most, the earlier part of the First World War, when they sort of just, they were in trenches for ages and ages. So he used tanks and aeroplanes and forward dropping of supplies and literally decimated the German lines that had been stuck there for years in an hour and a half. He just took them all out. And it was that momentum that eventually, between August the 8th, uh, 1918, and November the 11th, 1918, which basically won the war. So the guy was, he was a German speaker. He was very much an outsider. He certainly wasn't part of the British um, aristocracy, although he was the last man ever to be knighted on the battlefield by George V. Uh, So that's where he became Sir John Monash. So it's kind of, that was fascinating, actually. And that was kind of, I, I've got a really interest around that since I visited the Somme and I learned about him. That was a really good book, really interesting read. And there's a parallel there with your observation earlier, particularly around pricing, where he's an outsider, he comes in, different thinking. You were saying earlier, you come in and help businesses think differently about their pricing and, and sales and marketing. I think, Stephen, that uh, we'll draw it to a close there. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been fascinating. You're welcome. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.